How's it going? Welcome. It's good to have. So Joseph Addington, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself real quick? Who are you? Why the heck are you on this podcast with me? Sure. My name's Joseph Addington. I am a student at BYU. Um, uh, more importantly and pertinently, I am the president of Young Georgias of America and the managing editor for the Progress and Poverty uh, Substack. So I am here because Ben has kindly invited me to talk about Georgism today. And I'm excited to be here with you and explain and a little I, bit about I, this. This, is, this might be the nerdiest thing I've ever done, but like, this is the joy of having a podcast is I can be like, I just want to talk about the land tax for an hour. Like, let's just talk about the land tax. This is going to be so fun. This, so my heart of hearts, like I'm writing a little series and I, I'm going to, I'm, tell me if you think that this would be interesting. I'm thinking, so Andrew Yang just announced his forward policy, his forward party. And my thought is, what if, think about this, what if what we did was um, have a weekly series that's called Five Ideas That Are Better Than the UBI? And every week there are five new policy ideas that, I, which is not a low, you know, it's a pretty low bar to clear. I don't really love the UBI. I think the universal basic income is kind of a terrible idea. Um, but people got really excited about it because it was a new innovative policy. And so like, I just, in my heart of hearts, I'm a policy innovator. Like I love thinking about how things work and the, and the push and pull and, and how all of this stuff goes. Um, George, Georgism, I guess I would say, um, Georgism is, is especially focused around the land tax, or at least that's what I always hear. Why don't you tell me what, what is Georgism? Who does it come from? And why are you such a firm believer in it? And then we're just going to have a, a, a royal and good time. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess, the easiest way to kind of understand where Georgism comes from is to explain a little bit about Henry George. Um, Georgism is named after Henry George, who was a very, very influential political economist in the late 19th century. Um, so just a little bit about him. He was born in, in Philadelphia uh, and but later, you know, as a kid, he went to sea when he was 15 years old, he decided he left Philadelphia, got on a ship, sailed around the world. Um, and eventually he settled in San Francisco. Um, he married and he started working in the printing business there. Um, and so, you know, he started out very much as a working class pretty poor sort of guy. In fact, at one point, there is a story that he actually went out because his family was starving. Um, he went out and he begged for money. And he, he said, you know, I went up to the first person who looked like he had money and asked him, uh, you know, please give me money because my wife and my children are starving. <laughs> and he said, I think at that moment, I would have been willing to kill him. But thankfully, you know, he gave him money um, to help his family. So, you know, he came from very low. And Eventually, you know, he worked his way up in the printing business, um, but he was there in California from the very beginning. He saw it go from a gold rush, you know, very sort of Wild West state towards a much more industrialized, urbanized place. And so this entire time, you know, he eventually worked his way up through the printing business and became um, a newspaper editor and ran his own paper. And so while he was, you know, in the process of lifting himself up out of absolute poverty, um, he was pondering something that had always kind of confused him and that he had noted while he was, you know, sailing around the world in his, in his youth, which was 
for some reason, it seems like wherever there is technological progress, then poverty also gets worse. Um, you know, in the United States in the 18th century, this was really obvious. Poverty, there were many more poor, homeless people in the East, in the industrialized Eastern United States than there were out West in California. There were far more people, you know, in the dregs of poverty in industrialized Great Britain than in industrializing America. And so this was a real conundrum for a lot of people. Why, you know, as urbanization increases, as technology grows, you know, as we invent the steam engine, the factory system, the, you know, electric light, so much technological progress in a very short period of time, increasing in dramatically the productive capabilities of American society, why did it seem like poverty was getting worse? Um, and eventually he came to the conclusion, he realized that what the problem was, was the land. Um, specifically in California, for example, the gold rush, uh, all of that gold was on public land, open land. Anybody could come from the East and go to California and stake a claim and try to extract the gold, pan for it or mine for gold. And a lot of people got rich during doing that. And so what that happened is that drove up wages a ton. Um, you know, you could make hundreds of dollars. You could come over as a dirt poor Irishman, um, come over and work as a cook in a mining camp and make hundreds of dollars a day or hundreds of dollars a month, not a day, sorry, which was like a month's wages or which was a year's wages in Ireland, you could make far more money out West in the gold rush than you could anywhere else. Later, um, something almost identical happened in Nevada with the, the discovery of the Comstock load. The difference was that in this case, all of the money was on land that was already owned. It had already been staked. And so what happened, wages didn't go up at all. Instead, the people who had claimed the land on the Comstock load became incredibly wealthy. And this happened writ large everywhere. When natural resources are on public land, when they're open for anybody to get them, then that wealth goes to the workers. When the natural resources in Nevada were discovered, they were on private land. That wealth didn't go to the workers. It went to the landowners. The same thing was happening in the cities. The factory system made it much made land incredibly valuable in the cities. There was access to workers to work in the factories, access to markets um, to sell the goods that were being produced. And so what that meant is it meant that land in the cities became incredibly valuable. So what would happen is the factories would come, they would um, you know, enter the cities, the first department stores were being built, cities were increasingly densifying because they had all this new technology, um, these new systems of work that were designed expressly for city life. And the land values would go up and up and up. And instead of all of these technologies and new methods of production making life better, 
they made life harder because the land rents were what was increasing. The people who were getting rich were the landowners. The same thing happened for the railroads. Um, government, the, the railroad companies convinced the government to give hundreds of thousands of acres of land to the railroads. And that was where the railroads made all of their money. It was basically was, a monopoly on that pathway. And then, of course, they're going to get wealthy from it. Exactly. The railroads didn't make money from shipping goods. They made money by exploiting the monopoly that they had over the land. By in fact, the a lot of times, town, effectively. Yeah. In fact, a lot of times they would extort money from towns by going to them and saying, if you don't give us all of this land for free, we'll go around you. And then your town will die because everybody will use the railroad, right? And they'll just go past you. Interesting. Okay, so um, I I have so many questions. So first, how do modern political economists see Henry George? I mean, I'm I'm intrigued by this. How much weight does it carry? Is it taught in economic schools? Is he kind of a heterodox figure, or is he well accepted? I mean, what's what's kind of the status? Yeah, so that's kind of the funny thing. Economists generally think very well of Henry George. And in fact, if you read most basic economics texts, when they talk about things like um, incidents of taxation, then the land value tax comes up as, you know, a tax, which is um, the most efficient tax, like uh, Samuelson's basic economics, which was the foundation of the most schools of economics published back in the in the uh, late 50s, extremely influential, talks about the land value tax as just that kind of tax, perfectly efficient because um, land is a good of fixed supply. So Henry George is very well thought of by pretty much all economists, um, but his ideas on politics and the implementation of economic programs have for the most part been ignored. Interesting. Well, and I can already tell where the land tax is coming from because he's in two major events that are highly focused on specific pieces of land and natural resources. Now, I, I think my initial argument is that really does make sense when the land is valuable, but there are a lot of cases where that's not where the most, the most generation of wealth comes from. When you're talking about extraction of gold, that makes a lot of sense. So the gold rush, but when you're looking at something like technological progress, that may not always be the case. It's interesting because he, he makes, if I'm understanding you right, he makes a case for, I wouldn't say a, a Marxian case, but but much more of like, hey, sometimes this isn't super, there are winners and losers in technology and sometimes the losers really lose out. Um, and that that there's there's a social justice side of me that goes, that's that's interesting, that's compelling. I've never thought through that that way. Well, actually, George, uh, I would not... So Henry George actually clashed a little bit with Marx. <laughs> uh, there are some fun letters. Good, that means can, I like him. Yeah, there, there are some fun letters you can read um, what Marx said about Henry George because several people actually sent Marx a copy of Henry George's seminal book, Progress and Poverty. Uh, and he, he called it um, Capitalism's Last Ditch. <laughs> huh. So, Interesting. Yeah, but Henry George actually comes from a much more classical liberal perspective. Um, I don't know if you read the piece that I wrote for Persuasion, but I talk about this a little bit. The idea of land value taxes as being, so George in Progress and Poverty, the book that he published in um, 1879, where he kind of lays out this argument um, about 
the land tax, uh, his his essential argument was that um, so land land rents the money that is made from land it doesn't come from producing a good or service um, land rents are access charges uh, the land exists independent of the landowner right um, what your chart what what you're paying for is access um, if you got rid of all the landowner if you snap them out of existence like Thanos for example. Uh, and all the landowners disappeared, then the amount of land would still be exactly the same. So landowners aren't providing anything. Instead, what is being charged for is access to the, um, to the labor and capital of other people. So basically, if I have, for example, a landowner in New York City who rents out a piece of land, right? What is being paid for is access to the labor and capital of the people in New York City. They provide um, workers. If you want to build a factory on the land, those are the workers that will make the factory run. If you want to build a shopping center, those are the customers and their capital that are going to shop there. If you want to um, build a housing development, right? Those are the people who are going to pay to live in your housing development. So what landowners are charging for is for the industry of the community around them. It's interesting. I can remember back to when I was in D.C. and I was working for, for kind of an advocacy lobbying firm. And uh, I went to uh, one of those, you know, D.C. Um, events where they have lunch and it's just kind of a policy white paper discussion. They were so fun. It was one of my favorite parts about being in D.C., and somebody raised his hand and just said at the end in the Q and A, they said, "Well, have you have you run the analysis on on the on the land tax?" And this guy had this this white face. All of a sudden, he was stricken, and he said, "I I I I I can't start talking about Georgism right now. If I do, I'll never stop." And I'm sure you've thought about it much deeper than I have, right? Like it was very much this like this is what, like he had been haunted by the ghosts of Georgian's past, right? Like he knew that this, once somebody starts, like they know everything about this thing. Um, and so it's always kind of made me laugh, but so the land tax idea is really interesting. So some of the benefits to this in economics terms, if you choose something that is easy to get out of, then people try to get out of the tax. Now, in my mind, that can be used in a good way where you tax bad things. So if you tax alcohol, then people consume less of it. Um, there are problems with that though, which is who decides what's a bad thing? Right. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who would be really upset if we taxed alcohol. I think it's a good solution. But if you re if you're an alcohol producer and you have been for generations and now all of a sudden somebody puts a 20 percent tax on what you sell, that could put you out of business. That can be really hard um, if you're a consumer. Right. Like that. That's a thing, too. With a land tax, like you're not going to want to suddenly get rid of the land. Right. It's 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 one of those things that is is, you know, as as economists would say, it's elasticity. Right. Um, it's not the kind of thing that you can wiggle out of easily. Um, and so one of the benefits of the land tax is that what do you, are you personally an advocate for replacing some of our worst taxes with a land tax? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, that's basically the, the whole point of, of Georgism, especially in the modern day, um, is that you replace these inefficient, bad taxes with the taxes on, on land. So if you want to get into like the uh, the economic benefits of the land value tax, um, starts with the fact that, like you said, land is is an inelastic good. Um, whatever you tax, you get less of. If you tax buildings, people will build less. Uh, if you tax income, people will earn less. If you tax sales, uh, people will sell less. 
right? If you tax investment, people will invest less. And if so you, all of these cause- If you tax land, you can't, like, you cannot actually get less. Exactly. It work. If you tax land, you never end up with less land. Um, it comes all out of what in economics is called the producer surplus. Hmm. Uh, the other thing that this means is that taxing land uh, is that land taxes can't be passed on. Um, the, you know, oh, if, if you tax a landlord, right, it will always come out of the money that the landlord is paying. They can't just increase the rent and pass it on to the ten tenant, right? Some Occasionally you get people who are concerned about this. You know, if you pass a land value tax, they say people will just increase rents. That's not how it works. Economics, uh, you know, in economics, prices are determined by supply and demand. A land value tax doesn't alter the supply of land and it doesn't change what people want to use land for. So the price is the same. If you So, so what to- I'm hearing is the competition is going to squelch that anyway. It's not like they're just going to, I mean, it may shift the price, but it's it's not going to be because they suddenly get greedy and go, oh, now we can just up the price a whole bunch. They're going to, they're going to, now, I, now I, I need to figure out the incidence issue because I, I suspect that you're smarter than me on this issue, but I'm not fully making the connection because I, if, if all of a sudden you tax land ownership more, I would see a lot fewer people who, who have the capital to build new apartment buildings, for example. And so you would have less in supply in that way. You still have the land, but you don't have access. Again, it's the, it's the labor and capital issue that's reduced. So let me ask you this. The federal government owns, I don't know, like 40% of the country or some crazy huge number. If all of a sudden there's a land use um, tax, people aren't going to, the incentive to get that money is not any higher, right? The incentive to get- uh, To buy land from the federal government, right? Ah, To buy land. So available land could shift. Ah, yes. So that is- Yes, that is possible. However, that's a little bit different. Those are different markets, you might say. Sure. So sure. the land supply will change in response to the tax, um, but that's a good thing. In fact, likely what's going to happen is that more land is going to open up um, because, in fact, that's one of the purposes of the land value tax. Um because you would be taxed on an ongoing basis for using land, say, for example, the idea is that you charge based on the rental value. So if a piece of land would rent out on the market, excluding improvements, of course, um, I I should note here that the land value tax specifically differs from the property tax in that it excludes buildings and improvements on the land. Um, So the whatever you have built on the land will not change its value. It doesn't change the tax, right? Um, That's important. So let's say a plot of land would rent out for $1,000 a year on the open market. The land value tax on the plot of land, if you went, say, if you had, say, a 50% land value tax would thus, thus be $500 a year, right? So no matter what you have built on the land, you'll always be getting charged $500 a year. What that does is it incentivizes people to stop sitting on land that they have that is unused or underused and to sell it to other people who will use it. Um, You know, this is the idea of land speculation that Georgia sometimes bring up, Um, that there are people who will hold land out of use or will hold it in 
much below uh, ideal use and that the land value tax incentivizes these people to develop it. So if you always are being taxed the same amount, whether you have a parking lot or if you have a skyscraper, then you'll naturally want to build the skyscraper in order to be able to get the most value out of it. So what this means is that people who are holding land out of use or under use will sell the land, bring it to market, um, and then it will be developed. So lots of cities, for so example. So basically it's an incentive to go and develop your land and use it or get rid of it and allow somebody else to use it. So it hyper emphasizes like the incentive to go and use your land instead of just pretend. Okay, so let me ask you a question. You said, let's say that it goes for $1,000 on the open market. Is that how the land use tax is evaluated? Because the demand for the land is going to change based on who's got it and what the purpose that they're using it is. Yeah, so that is the question of assessment. So there are lots of different ways to assess. Um, if you want, Lars Doucette has a great article that he wrote about the question of land assessment. Um, I can send that to you later. You can link it. Uh, your listeners might find it interesting. Um, so the idea is that, you know, if you take the, you know, the open market, there's going to be a highest price for what people are willing to pay for it. Um, ideally, that price should be the one that is set because so the market price of any good is the highest price that people are willing to pay for it. If I have, you know, a cell phone like this, say, um, the market price of this cell phone is if I put it up at auction and and everybody who is interested in buying a cell phone places a bid, the highest, the highest bid is going to win. So that's the idea that is the market value for any piece of land. And so what assessments do, just like assessments on a house for your property taxes, assessments take, comp um, take land that is comparable, lots of land that are uh, you know, have comparable characteristics, cross-reference all of those different characteristics, and then use those to determine the market value based on similar pieces. So, so, so this might be the best possible time to talk about Glenn Weil. And I know that you and I have talked about this a little bit. This, I think, is one of the, the most boring sounding but revolutionary ideas that I think I've ever heard. Um, and I want to explain it as best I can. And you're welcome to jump in. I think it mostly focuses on the self-assessment piece. But what it actually, at first, it sounds like a way to assess your house price. And then all of a sudden you realize that it undoes capitalism and like everything is different. And it's like, it's super crazy. Now, I, I tentatively like it, but that's, it's kind of like how I like ranked choice voting where, yeah, I like it, but I haven't thought through it all the way. And this is something we need to pilot a lot first. Imagine if instead of having a regular home contract, what it becomes is you set your own price. But the price that you set is subject to taxation on the one side and an immediate call option on the other side. So let's say that your house is $250,000. That's what you set your own price as. If you go any higher than that, if you go any lower than that, you pay less in taxes, but somebody could walk by and say, that's it. I'm, I'm buying your house and you cannot say no. And you have six months to get out. And what yeah. it is. So have you heard about this idea before? Yeah. So in economics, this is called a Harburger tax, which a is har uh, 
Harburger tax. Harburger tax. Okay. Yeah. So I, that's a tax on the self-assessed value of goods uh, or or property, then backed up by a an open option to buy. Okay. So I love this idea. Now I've never played with it before, and I'm sure there are economists who have. Um, but what it does is it makes you rethink the idea that it's your house. Uh, it 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 very much encourages the same thing you're talking about, which is like you're not just going to sit on a piece of land. But it also allows people to say, um, to, to be more efficient in their use of the land. So one of the things that I think Georgists really get right is that if you own a monopoly on land, which is basically owning the land in the first place, you stand to gain a whole lot. Um, and it can be, so one of the simplest examples of this is if you're selling a house in a pretty competitive area, you can really extract a lot of rents from the person who's trying to buy. And there's a lot of ways that you do this, but basically it can, it can, be, it can be a tilted mar- market against, um, against buyers. What this does is it equals the playing field because let's say that you want to um, let's say that you want to minimize your tax, you lower and lower and lower and lower. But if you want to keep your house, then you're going to go higher and higher and higher and higher. And that somewhere in between there is the is is the is the ideal place. Now it's interesting to me for housing markets, but it gets me really excited in IP. Intellectual property is this beast that we struggle to figure out because it's effectively what we've done is say, we don't really know what it is, but we know it's a thing. We want to reward it so people make more intellectual property, but at the same time, it's complicated. And so we've given legal monopolies in the forms of patents and copyrights, and that's all of the IP stuff. Well, legal monopolies have the same problem that regular monopolies do, right? They're inefficient. They cause problems. People can charge too much. And one of the big ones is patent trolling. You're not actually worried about inventing new things. You're worried about look at like getting the patents so that you can sue people, right? That is a huge problem. And right now there is no price on a patent. It's just, I have it and I'm going to sue anybody who gets close, right? And so there there are companies that all they spend their time doing is um, patent trolling or or, or whatever you want to call it, basically going around trying to buy the right patent so they, they can sue people and make money that way. What this does is it says, you can have that patent, but you have to set your own price and then you get taxed on it. There is no benefit to you buying a patent that is mostly useless because you're going to have to pay the price for that. You're going to have to tax it. And if it's really useful, you're going to pay a lot more for it. And if it's not really useful, then you're probably going to just want to get rid of it or pay as little as possible. And all of a sudden that makes a lot of sense. And I, I would say, you know, how long the patents last and all of that kind of stuff that that can still be figured out. But to me, that's a really intriguing idea. What are your thoughts? Yeah. So Harbor, Harburger taxes on um, things like houses, especially, ha- run into the big problem that it's not possible to separate land from improvements. So, from a Georgist perspective, you know, so Whale is not really a Georgist because he would like to tax all wealth, including capital, whereas Georgists are strictly against the idea of taxing capital. Um, you know, as a as a last resort. There are some Georgists who say, for example, if we tax away all other rent, the rents of economic land, then it would be permissible to tax capital if we needed it for the government. But generally speaking, Georgists are not uh, are opposed to, to taxes on anything other than the value of economic land. And economic land is more than just just dirt. I'll, I'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but harbor ta- Harburger taxes on homes, for example, or on businesses run into this issue where um, it's not possible to eval to to value your home separate from the land that it's on. Same thing for like a business. And so what? So for a Georgist, it's not useful 
because we are interested in taxing the land and we specifically want to get rid of those taxes on improvements. I see, so I understand the reason why you would want to separate it from improvements, but I still, I, I don't mind that idea. I know it's less efficient economically, but effectively, I mean, there's still going to be a proportion of the tax that is actually based on, on that. Um, but it's also going to incentivize the same thing where you can justify, look, if you're improving the land and making it more beautiful and making it awesome, then you can, um, well, I mean, then I guess you pay a higher tax. So it disincentivizes that, but people That's are going to want to buy it more. With, with all property, with all property taxes, they're a mix of the very two worst taxes. A property tax is a mix on the tax on the value of land, which is the best tax, perfectly economically efficient and a tax on improvements, which is the worst tax. You are literally penalizing people for making things that people want to use. If you renovate a business, for example, uh, in a property tax, you, you'll pay more. Um, the nicer your house looks, the, the, the better your, your building is, the more people want to live by your building, the more your property tax goes up. So you're directly penalizing the best kind of economic activity. Oh, that's interesting. Well, you ruined one of my favorite ideas. Now, what am I going to do? Gosh darn it, I like that one. Joseph Addington, you're fired. However, I will say that putting it on intellectual property is a very good one. So I guess one the thing to understand about Georgism is that Georgism is very much um, coming from the classical liberal tradition, which focuses on the abolition of what we might call special privileges. Um, in, in, in classical economics, this was just the idea of monopolies. Um, in, economic, in, in today's economic terms, this is what we call rents. Right. That is, um, you know, any price which is charged, any, um, in, the strict economic definition is any charge which is above the cost of bringing the factor of production to market. But basically this means any charge which is not for a good or service. Well, then let me see if I can explain this in, in, in layman's terms, because I think this is an important concept. And I'll bet that all of our listeners have now fallen asleep. And I'm good with that because this is, this is my podcast and I get to talk about what I want. But um, I think this is a really important point. There's something in economics that we call rent seeking. And it's a complicated reason why we call it rent seeking. And it doesn't really have to do with rent in the way that you normally think about it. So let me say it in a way that might make a little bit more sense. There are two ways to earn money in economics. One way is by producing value for somebody else. The other way is to not produce some, some value for somebody else and to still make money, okay? When you do the latter, we are talking about rent seeking. So for example, if you are a monopoly, let, let me give you a better example. If you are a lemonade salesman um, on the side of the street with a lemonade stand and you squeeze better lemons and you find the best lemons that you can and you get a better production you know, team and there are cute little kids out there that market for you and you find a way to do it that's cheaper and better quality, that is traditional competition. We like that. That's a good thing. If on the other hand, you pay some of those kids to go and club Billy down the way, who's also selling lemonade in the kneecaps, that is rent seeking. That's where you're trying to, to harm somebody else, harm the competition, or you lobby the Senator and say only one person per every 50 blocks can actually sell lemonade or, or something like that. That's the rent seeking option, which most of the time happens through lobbying. That's why economists are pretty scared generally of any kind of lobbying effort. Is that uh, an accurate way to see this? Yeah. So the best way to summarize it is, um, is value production versus value extraction. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And in classical economics, this is always called monopoly. So monopoly is 
whenever you extract value from the market by restricting competition. And oh, this got it. natural so, or an artificial restriction. Because today so, we think of monopoly in strict like market power, market share terms, where today it's like you are a monopoly if you're the only player, whereas they would have said any time that you can play that game, even if you're only playing it a little bit, you're still a monopolist. Right. Got and it. So okay. So definitional the, shift. Yeah. So the value that you can, the value that you can extract from people by limiting or preventing competition it are economic rents. Um, so intellectual property is a great example of this, right? That is a government monopoly, um, which is artificially imposed. Uh, the idea is that, you, you know, people will accrue rents, which will encourage research and development. Um, but the question is, you know, are these rents properly earned? Um, there are lots of Georgists, for example, who believe in, in abolishing intellectual property protections entirely. I can't, say I'm, I can't say I'm one of them, but, you know, the argument is that you know, you can discover something and you can build it, but you don't have any right just from discovering it to prevent other people from independently discovering it and using it at the same time, in the same way. Right. Um, and so, you know, the entire basis of Georgism as a philosophy depends on this very idea, which is that you should be able to own uh what you make yourself, the product of your own labor, but natural, but the earth, natural uh, resources and natural opportunities are the common property of everyone. Everyone has an equal right to them. So that essentially is what the idea of the land value tax comes from, but also all of the other ideas which make up Georgism um, all spring from that same essential root. And that's the liberal root, right? The idea that, you know, every individual can work for themselves, can produce things for themselves from the free gift of nature, as opposed to the, the, the medieval idea of the landlord class who was responsible for the other classes and so forth. So, so this is interesting to me. So I think for myself, um, the land value. So what if it was a Harburger tax only on the land, but not the improvement? What you're saying is you can't separate the two. It's impossible. Right. Because if I set the land value tax, so because whenever you have land with an improvement on it, then if you have a land value tax, right, the buy option the Harburger tax for, for a Harburger tax to be effective, um, there has to be the ability to buy the call, right? If somebody sets the the self-assessed value at $100,000, there has to be the option to come in and buy that at $100,000 for it to work. Um, the problem is if you have an improvement on there, that improvement is also worth money. If you set the, and so if you set the land value tax low, for example, um, because say the land isn't worth that much, but you have an improvement that's worth a lot, right? Somebody could come in and buy the land for the low price and they get the improvement along with it. Right. So there's no way to separate out the two. Exactly. That's the issue. Okay. Well, then the, then the next question is, okay, so IP, 
Are we still on the right page about that? Could we do it in such a way? Um, because I, the, the argument that my friends raise when they say get rid of all IP is actually pretty straightforward. And what they say is, yes, it does good and incentivizes people to create things and invent things, but it causes more harm than good because then you divert creative capacity away from creating new things and focus on holding onto that monopoly, right? It's, it's, it's the, the rent seeking where you're worried about clubbing Billy in the kneecaps with your patent instead of worrying about producing a new cool thing that, that comes with a patent. Now, I think that reform of IP makes sense anyway. Um, the two things that I've heard, and I'm not an IP specialist, so this might be wrong, um, is one, patents were supposed to be that you get the patent, but in exchange, you only have five years and then your information is all, all released to the public, right? The whole idea of it was supposed to be that after those five years, not only do you not get to keep the patent, but you have to release whatever you got patented and it becomes public so people can now compete against you. So you get a leg up or, or a head start, but after that, it's, it's done. The second thing that I've heard from people is, you know, 14 years, 50 years, 100 years, depending on whether we're talking about, you know, trademarks and copyrights and whatever, a lot of it's just too long. Um, and then just shortening it seems like it's a, you know, there's an equilibrium price and we don't know exactly what it is, but it sure seems like a lot of this is just way too long. Um, and you could even kind of sliding scale it with the price. I, I guess I should say, if you, if you have to self-assess the price every year that you still have patent value, you're going to see the value of the patent go down like this until it's just not worth anything because that's when it gets released. Um, and that to me seems quite attractive to be able to see that, um, yeah, if you make something really cool, you should have five years to make some money off of it. That's a good thing if you make a new drug or whatever else. But if it's not that exciting of a patent and somebody else wants to buy it for you know 50 bucks, then they should be able to. So are there any other reasons why you would say no to the, to the, to the IP uh, Harburger tax? Yeah, so Harburger taxes on IP are perfectly fine because IP is a pure monopoly. So you can set the tax on that and there's no question of separating land on improvements. Are uh, separating land and improvements. So the Harburger tax on IP is actually a perfectly um, good idea for doing intellectual property reform. I think the easy, I think a much easier thing to do is just go through and dramatically reduce the terms of patents and copyrights, which is what I would do. Um, you know, if if I were in charge of doing an making uh, an IP reform bill, because a lot of it is just incredibly long, uh, especially with copyrights, it's very ridiculous. You, Our copyright law is run by Disney and it just gets extended every time Mickey Mouse comes up for public domain. Um, it started out being 14 years and now it's like 128 years of copyright. That's absurd. I the, agree. So just reducing the time might be an easier fix. Yeah. So if you're if you're an IP abolition skeptic, um, then at the very least, you know, reduce patent and copyright terms down. Um, other options that are available for IP reform that I would definitely consider. Um, the Harburger tax is a great one. I've heard lots of people offer that one up. Um, another one is using the Harburger tax to off, offer a public buyout option for all patents. So the government will come in and can use that Harburger self-assessed price to buy up any patents that are valuable to the public. So this would be things like um, insulin or medicine, uh, things that right now the United States health system goes under, faces a lot of criticism because these drugs are so expensive um, because of the way that we do our intellectual property regimes. 
So the government could come in then and buy out these patents and put them on the public domain so that cheap generics could be manufactured and bring down the prices of things that are right now very expensive because we are granting artificial legal monopolies on dumb stuff and and mm -hmm. legal monopolies on some stuff that makes sense because we want to incentivize innovation but a lot of stuff that's just patent trolling and that doesn't make sense and it's about how well you know the system and how many lawyers you have and that to me strikes me as i i think that's the part that i like the fix of, of having the harburger tax all right uh, I should let you go. This has been a great hour. Uh, I need to end. You don't like ranked choice voting. And this is very exciting to me because ranked choice voting is the thing, but I'm a contrarian and I like not liking the thing. Whatever the thing is, I want to be the contrarian voice. So my, uh, let me give the best possible version of why I like ranked choice voting. And you can poke holes in it as you, as you successfully did with the Har Harburger taxes. Um, I, liked rank, I like ranked choice. And the reason is, is a few different things. Um, one, it allows people to have a more nuanced and more, um, I guess what I would say is it feels like you're able to communicate more with a single vote, right? So it's not just, I want this person it's here is my set of preferences. And there's a psychological benefit, I think, to the voter when they can be that precise. Um, number two, I think that there's, I remember reading about all of these theorems and there's different ways that voting can be that are, that are meaningful. And it checks a lot of those boxes of efficiency, but I guess the third and most important one to me is. Um, right now, people run for the polls, right? They're either looking for the for the right-leaning poll or the left-leaning poll, or sometimes just the Donald Trump, like, let me just say crazy stuff poll. Um, and I don't say that to be offensive, but I don't really care if I offend somebody by saying that, like it is what it is. Um, let me see if the, 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 the best way that I can say this is, I think with ranked choice voting, you're still looking for second place. With every voter, if they don't love you first, you can still be the person and you're going to have people run for the middle. They're going to be blase and say, you know, nothing very useful sometimes, but they're going to try a lot harder to avoid the extremes, to avoid polarizing and avoid being offensive. Um, and I think that that's probably a good thing. I think that has some incentive to be the second or third place candidate instead of, you know, it was interesting. Donald Trump, I think, if I remember right, was like 35% in a lot of those early primaries but had the highest unlikability numbers. Like people hated him unless they loved him. And it was a very love hate kind of a thing. Um, you're telling me about something called the center squeeze effect and reasons why approval voting is better. Now, I don't mind approval voting. I think it's a great idea. I think approval voting is much better than what we currently have. But I would right now say ring choice and approval are about the same. Be my policy wonk friend, poke holes in that. Why am I wrong? Yeah, so I think the first uh, the, the first point that you bring up that approval voting allow or that uh, ranked choice voting allows you to present a more expressive vote, you might say, um, is I think the intuitive appeal of it. Um, but there's kind of a problem with that because what matters when you're looking at a voting system is not what the ballot allows the voter to express; it's the information that the that the calculation system takes into account. And so the problem with ranked choice voting is that a lot of the information that is being expressed by the voter in a ranked choice system ends up getting thrown out in the calculation phase. Um, the center squeeze effect is a great example of this because so say you have a, a candidate on the left, a candidate on the right and a candidate in the center. The candidate in the center can have the very best, like the candidate in the center, if you put them in a head-to-head -head matchup against the candidate on the left and the candidate on the right can win. But if they 
come in last in the first place votes, then they'll get eliminated. And it will come down to either the left or the right candidate. So, for example, you said second choice, people running for would run for second choice. That's exactly the scenario in which ranked choice voting underperforms because, say, there's a candidate that's very popular as a second choice, but is the least popular as a first choice. Say every single person would vote for them as a second choice, but they're not very popular as a first choice. They would be eliminated from ranked choice voting in the first round because they have the fewest least choice vote preferences. Okay, so so let's let's put names to this, not because we want to embarrass anybody, but so that we can grapple with it more meaningfully. You've got three candidates. You've got, um, I'm trying to think of good examples. You've got Alexandria- Let's go ahead and say Bernie Sanders on the left. Well, I was was gonna say AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right? A real firebrand on the left. I don't say that's a bad thing. And then a real firebrand on the right, you know, Tom Cotton or, or, or Josh Hawley, right? Or, or Ted Cruz on the right. And then you've got boring Mitt Romney in the middle. What you are saying is effectively that's going to underperform and you're going to go right back to a, to a, a regular vote because either it's going to be AOC and then Ted Cruz or it's going to be Ted Cruz and then AOC. But no one is, Mitt Romney's going to lose. No matter so how we'll, you slice yeah. it, he's going to be squeezed. Yeah, because so what how the ranked choice system uh, works is it tallies up first place votes, right? Then it eliminates the person with the least first place votes and their votes will go to their second choice. So let's say that you have Mitt Romney in the middle. Let's say there are 100 people voting in the election, right? 30. So let's say that you have 35 people that like uh, let's say Ted Cruz is on the right and AOC is on the left, right? Let's say you have 35 people that like Ted Cruz. You have 30 people that like AOC. And then you have 30 people whose first choice is Mitt Romney, right? And then let's say every single other person puts their second choice. Let's say every single person who voted for Ted Cruz and AOC put their second choice as Mitt Romney, right? He has a 70-30 favorability in the second place round. He will get eliminated in the very first round because it was 35, 35, 30 in first choice votes. He had the fewest first choice votes. He's eliminated his voters. Then their second choice votes will go and it will sort out between Ted Cruz and AOC, depending on who of Mitt Romney's voters liked, uh, which, which one of them Mitt Romney's voters liked the best. And so what this does is it means that ranked choice voting fundamentally doesn't change the two party system. It is always incentivized towards polarization, towards the the ends of the spectrum. We have a lot of of evidence of this. Ranked choice voting has been used in Australia for more than 100 years. Uh, Since 1918, ranked choice voting has been the way that Australia elects their lower house of of representatives. And Australia has a two-party system. So we, we know from... This, this isn't just this isn't just yeah. hypothesizing. This is there's, there's there's empirical evidence on this. Exactly. So if your problem is that you know you want to break out of the binary of having to choose between Democrats or Republicans, ranked choice voting is not going to help you. Well, um, especially when there's is, only two choices a lot of times. It, it is marginally better than what we have now. 
there are a few seats in Australia. I, I think there's like seven or eight, um, which are represented by third parties, mostly the Australian Green Party. That's well, better, than the, that's better be, than the United States, where there are zero. Well, but, to, be, to be clear, though, I mean, and unless you get rid of first past the, fo- the post. So I, I remember being in, uh, in my intro to poli sci class at BYU. And the professor said, some of you wonder why the United States only has two parties. And the reason is because it's designed that way. And it's first past the post. And that's why single single representative member district, SMRP, something like that. And he showed us the data on this and my head exploded. I was like, I can't believe this. We only have two parties because, because we designed our system that way. And then we actually went in and studied what, why is it better to have two parties instead of five, right? And it's it's a lot more majoritarian and you get things done faster. He even made a really interesting argument. He said, in the United States, we are a very, the only thing that we have that is that is majoritarian is our two parties. Everything else slows us down. Our Senate is slow. We have strong committees. Every, every piece of the government that you could imagine that would put brakes on the system is there, except for the, for the if, if there are six parties, it goes even slower. So it's not necessarily a good idea to have seven parties. It's a trade-off, right? It gives you a little bit more specificity in what you choose. There's the the, the intuitive effect that you were talking about. Um, but I guess what you're saying then, if I'm understanding you right, is it won't make that big of an impact. Whereas in approval voting, I can just imagine in my head, okay, you've got Mitt Romney, you've got AOC, and you've got Ted Cruz. If 50 people total think Mitt Romney might not be their favorite choice, but he's the one that we can deal with, then he wins. And if only 20 believe that it's AOC and 15 believe it's Ted Cruz, um, or I guess make the numbers better, 20, uh, 30 for, for Ted Cruz and 25 for AOC, but everybody kind of thinks that Mitt Romney is fine, um, then, then that would probably, are there places where we've done that, where we've tried that? Because in my mind, my thought would be, if I'm running on an approval ticket, my goal is not to win. My goal is to make sure that so-and-so loses. My goal is to attack so-and-so so that he is not on the approval list, not to actually put forward, because I don't need to be first. I just need to survive. So there are not very many, currently very many places that run approval voting. There, let's see, there's Fargo, North Dakota uh, and St. Louis, Missouri. Those are the two municipalities which currently run on approval voting. There aren't any states um, or countries that use approval voting just because it's a relatively uh, new voting system. I mean, it's not new. People have been using approval voting forever, just for not for for government, right? Um, as for the campaign incentives for approval voting, it very much emphasizes consensus building. You usually don't want to attack other people because, well, attacking other people does decrease their favorability ratings sometimes. It also tends to decrease your own favorability ratings. Right. So unless you can do it in a ninja way or be a spoiler candidate where your, your only job is to attack somebody, there's, there's no incentive to do that. Exactly. So it, here's, here's, here's something that also might interest you. If you want something that's, that is like approval voting, but allows you to express yourself more, uh, to express more information on voter preferences on the ballot, then you can always do what's called range voting. Have you heard of range voting before? No, so it sounds range, interesting. Range voting is basically just a rating system. You give each candidate a rating from, let's say, from one to 10, right? 
And then you just add up all the ratings and the person who has the highest total rating number wins. Oh, so I like that, that idea. Yeah. So that has much of the same effect as approval. There's no spoiler, um, but it allows more expression. So, so, I mean, because one of the things that I've thought for a while is what if you gave everybody 10 votes? This is the same idea, right? And you can vote for as many people as you want to, as many times as you want to. Um, now, I like this better because it's it's a little bit more straightforward in terms of, no, you have to give everybody a rating from zero to 10. Um, so it's not, you know, use up your votes. You can give everybody a 10 if you want to. It's just a kind of a, it's kind of a wasted vote. Um, the other thing that it incentivizes, though, is that incentivizes you to learn more about the third party, you know, the, the dark horse candidates that you've never heard about before, because you got to put a number on them. You can't just not vote for them. You actually have to say no or yes or a five or a seven or a, or a two. Um, and I think that kind of homework doing for the American people would not be a bad thing. Yeah. So that would be my in fact, I actually I like range voting a lot more than approval voting. I advocate for approval voting because it's very simple to implement and it's and it's pretty high trust, right? Especially in the current political environment, people's trust of the ballot matters. And so simplicity of implementation and understanding how the system works matters. Approval voting, the system for voting is exactly the same as what we do now, except instead of check one box, it's check as many boxes as you like. And same thing, calculation works the exact same way. Fascinating. It's just you add up the votes. Joseph, this has been such a joy. Thank you. Where can people learn more about your work? If you have, you know, are you on Twitter? Are you, I mean, what's your, what's, what, what where do, where should people follow you? And then you have to tell me, are you planning a PhD in economics someday or what, what's, what's your future plan? Yeah. So you can follow me on, on Twitter. I'm at Georgist Joseph. Um, you can also follow the Substack that I manage, which or I'm the managing editor for. That is progressandpoverty.substack.com. Um, you can look it up on Google Progress and Poverty Substack, where we write about Georgism and its various implications for you know society. We're, we're mostly focused, in fact, on what is Georgism beyond the land value tax? Because Georgists have talked about that for a long time, but it's a lot more than just that. Um, or so they say. Well, there are lots of other implications, I, I would like to say. Okay. So. Um, and then what, yeah. what is your future plan? What are, you, what are you hoping to do? Oh, yeah. So I am a political science major. Um, I mostly study political philosophy, but currently my plan is actually to go into law. Huh. All so. right. Well, uh, good luck. Be well. Don't let the legal profession get you down. Um, and don't don't sue me. Uh, but this has been great. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for nerding out with me. And, and uh, we'll talk to you another time. It's good to be informed, but there's a problem. There isn't enough time in the day to become an expert in everything. To be useful in life, you have to make decent decisions on the fly without all the information. That's why we're not trying to be experts here. The goal of our podcast is about ideas and insights. We're not married to being right. Our goal is to contribute something meaningful to the conversation before it moves downstream. Our goal isn't to be provocative, but to be insightful. So if you're looking to help the podcast, don't just advertise it. Advertise an insight you gained or skill you're trying, something that you've learned from us. Then use the hashtag Radical Civility so we can see that we're making a difference. Thanks for listening. We hope you find it helpful.